Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under, the, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will." And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Well, let's pray and then we'll ponder the greatness of God. Father, we, we come asking very simply that you would turn our attention to you. Please pull us away from, from our earthly plight. Pull us away from earthly considerations. Pull us away from thoughts and entanglements of this life and help us to see just a sliver of your great power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, having spent several weeks considering God and His role as creator and sustainer of every created thing, we now move into four consecutive chapters in our, our study that deal with a truth about God that is directly associated to those previous truths, namely God as creator and that topic or that truth about God concerns His sovereignty. The sovereignty of God, as we said, as we considered those chapters, if you agree that God is creator, if you agree that God is sustainer, well then there ought to be no question that God holds the position of sovereign ruler over all that He has created and sustained. Well now we are going to consider his sovereignty, and I want to do like we've done before. I want to start with some things that our confession of faith says and a, and a brief introduction into this theme, and then we'll jump into the workbook in a few minutes. But as most of you know, the sovereignty of God is a pretty big deal amongst people uh, like us who would fall into the category of the Reformed. Very often, that's, that is one of the attributes of God that we champion first and foremost above all. And our confession... Um, holds true in mentioning the sovereignty of God several times. In chapter 2, paragraph 2, chapter 2 is the chapter on God uh, Himself, and we have a list of His attributes in paragraph 1. We'll come back to those in a minute. But in paragraph 2, we read that He hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever Himself Pleaseth. In chapter 20, paragraph 3, we read, The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in divers times and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted, is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God. Why is it that some nations receive the gospel? and others don't? Answer, merely the sovereign good pleasure of God. Chapter 22, paragraph 1, The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all. The light of nature says that this is the case. As, as we read from Nebuchadnezzar, his reason returned to him. And what did reason tell him? There is a God who rules Everything. To deny the absolute sovereignty of God is to be unreasonable. 
The light of nature shows it. Chapter 26, paragraph 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. When we talk about God as being sovereign, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read of Jesus in the Gospels, we're reading of the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. In paragraph 28, or chapter 28, paragraph 1, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution appointed by the Lord Jesus. Why does the church push people underwater and pull them back out? Because the sovereign Lord of the church said to do it. Why does the church partake of the Lord's Supper, of the bread and the wine regularly? Because the sovereign Lord of the church said to do it. He's sovereign. So clearly our confession would assert the sovereignty of God. But back in, in chapter 2, again, that, that first paragraph that we typically would run to to see a list of God's attributes, the sovereignty of God is stated in a way that we might not catch. It might be veiled to our modern ears. In that paragraph, we read that God is most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable will for His own glory. He's most free, most absolute. And I've, I've asserted this in the past, that if you, if you study what is being said in those phrases, most free, most absolute, when you come out the other end, what you're hearing is that God is sovereign. The word most is, it takes us to the superlative level of whatever we're describing. To say that God is most anything is to say that with regard to this trait, there's none higher than God. No higher level that can even be achieved. By God Himself, God cannot be more free than He is. To be free is to be unrestricted, unhindered, loosed from all limitation and all influence. Now the term absolute, historically, by the 17th century, came to mean pure in position. That is to say that God holds a position of unmixed, unadulterated authority. His position is only pure authority. It is to say, or to say that God is most absolute is to say that He has a position of authority that is invested in Him and Him alone and there is no mixture of any other being coming in with Him to set in authority. He is at the top. When we say that God is most absolute, we're saying that as an, a necessary element of His essential being, God is the sole supreme ruler over everything. And to say that He's most free is to say that God in all His ways, all His attributes and all His actions is in no way influenced for good or for bad by anything outside of Himself. Now, if we take those ideas and then we would come to A.W. Pink's definition of the sovereignty of God, he says it's God's right to govern the universe which He has made for His own glory just as He pleases. He's free and absolute in his position to rule and to reign however he pleases. Again, that is to say that God in all his ways, 
attributes, and actions is in no way influenced for good or for bad by anything outside of himself. God does nothing because he looks at the situation and he says, well, well, if I, if I, if, since this is happening, well, then I guess I'll have to do this. I must do this because it'll issue forth in this. No, God is in no way restrained like that. God and God alone in Himself orders all that He does. This is to say He's sovereign. No means by which God carries out an act or does what He does is in any way influenced by anything outside of Himself. We might wonder why God does this or that thing and why does He use this or that method? Well, the answer is never found in some outside influence. Well, he had to do that because this. Well, he had to do that because of that. The answer is only found in the good pleasure of God. He does as he pleases. We might read the scriptures and ask, why, why would God choose the nation of Israel to punish those in the, the Canaanites? Why would God then later use Assyria to punish Israel? Why would God choose the foolishness of preaching? to bring sinners to Himself? Why would God create in six days rather than six seconds? Why? 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 The answer is always because it pleased Him. He was doing as He pleased. The answer is never, well, He was sort of constrained by this or that influence or, or there was a council around Him helping Him to, to make sense of things. No, He's absolutely free. He does according to His will. God is completely uninfluenced in the exercise of His perfections toward His creation. There is no standard of godness to which He must comply if He is to be God. He doesn't come along and say, well, I see the rules for being God are laid out here. I guess I'll submit to the rules. No, He is the sole supreme ruler over all. And as such, He is Himself the standard of all of His perfections. And there is no other who can meet those standards or set those standards or question those standards. He alone is God. He is free in all of His ways. He's free in all of His works. Everything that He does, He's absolutely free. Whether it be creation or providence or revelation or salvation, in everything God does, in working all things, He is unrestricted, unhindered, uninfluenced by anything outside of Himself. God rules over the price of tea in China. If there is a hill of beans somewhere, God rules over that hill of beans. If there's a mountain somewhere, God rules over that mountain. He reigns over it. If there's a molehill somewhere, God rules over that mole and over that hill and even over that vacuous space that the mole dug out during the night while you were sleeping. He rules over it all. Absolutely sovereign and free in all of His ways, in all of His works, He's the sole supreme ruler over all. He's the only ruler. He rules by Himself and He rules for Himself, as we saw previously in Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Everything originates with Him. Everything exists through Him. And everything exists for Him. There were no rulers before Him and there will be no rulers after Him. There aren't even any rulers beside Him, helping Him or giving Him aid in any way. We will say, well, the Lord uses means. Yeah, because He pleases, not because He needs to. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 45, 18, I am the Lord and there is no other. 
Isaiah 45, 21, And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. He is alone as ruler, completely and utterly isolated and solitary in His authority. When He takes counsel, He takes counsel from Himself and no other. He is the highest. There is no ruler above Him. There is no authority above Him. He answers to none. He reports to none. He is responsible to none but Himself. You say, why? How can that be? Because He's God. To say that God is God is to assert His sovereignty. To say that He's sovereign is merely to say He's God. In Genesis 14, verse 19 and 20, Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high. Blessed be God most high. Psalm 57, 2, I cry out to God most high. Psalm 92, 1, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O most high. Now that's astonishing. When we come to the New Testament, we find out that the sovereignty of God is a doctrine that not even the demons doubt. In Mark chapter 5, verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The demons assert that God is Most High. In Acts chapter 16, verse 17, the the girl possessed by a demon, it says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Even the demons know God is at the top. He's the Most High. There is none higher. God Himself can't even be any higher than He is. These are all simply ways of saying God is sovereign. It's important to us. Some of you have probably read the quote where Jonathan Edwards says, Sovereignty is the attribute I love to ascribe to God. It's just great. It ought to be great for us to just assert the sovereignty of God. Are there other attributes of God? Sure. Many other perfections, infinite perfections that we will never fully comprehend. Even in eternity we'll be studying them. But the sovereignty of God is important. Now, that being said, we can jump into the, the chapter here. And there, there is a lot of reading. The, the chapter itself is not very long, but there is a lot of reading. So I'll, I'll read and you read along with me and, and we'll look at a couple or several Scripture references together. But the title of the chapter is that God is the Lord and Sovereign over all. The Scriptures teach us not only that God is the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, but also that He is the Sovereign Lord and King. He rules over all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest to the smallest, by His perfect wisdom, infinite power, and absolute righteousness. He is free to do all things according to His own will and to do them for His own glory and good pleasure. No power in heaven or on earth can annul what He has determined. Again, these are all just ways of saying God is sovereign. Now the first heading here is is entitled The Supremacy of God. Before we explore the details of His sovereignty, we must first consider a doctrine that is absolutely essential to a correct understanding of God, and that is His supremacy. The word supreme refers to that which is highest in excellence, rank, or authority. The supremacy of God refers to His exalted place above all creation. 
The truth of God's supremacy has many important implications. With regard to God's person, it means that He is infinitely more excellent than any of His creatures and of infinitely greater worth than all of His creation combined. With regard to God's place, it means that He is exalted above all creation and has no equals. With regard to God's purpose, it means that He is at the very center of all things and that He directs all things toward one great goal, His own glory. Now as we begin, as is often the case, we begin with the names that are ascribed to God. So let's turn to Psalm 97, verse 9. Psalm 97, verse 9. The psalmist says, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Or as the NAS has it as a title, Lord most high. High. The note says that the name Lord Most High is translated from the Hebrew phrase Yahweh Elion, which communicates the sovereignty, exaltation, and majesty of Yahweh. The scripture is not teaching that there is more than one true God. Notice it says, You are exalted far above all gods. It's not teaching that there is more than one true God. In the time of the psalmist, as well as today, the nations were inundated with false gods in the worship of idols. The Apostle Paul states that these so-called gods were nothing more than demons and that those who sacrificed to them sacrificed to demons. Psalm 97.9 is simply stating that God is exalted and sovereign over all things, including the false idols of men and the powerful demonic influences behind them. He is the Lord Most High, Yahweh Elion. Now let's look at Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He says the phrase is the high and exalted one or the one who is high and lifted up and whose name is holy both communicate the same truth about God. The word holy comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means separated, marked off, placed apart, or withdrawn from common use. With regard to God, the word has at least two important meanings. Number one, God is transcendent above His creation. And two, He is transcendent above His creation's corruption. He is high and lifted up and holy. He's separated apart from us. He's distinct in every conceivable category. God is unlike us and distant from us. Transcending His creation. High above us. Number two. Having considered the divine names that reveal God's supremacy, 
We will now consider one of the most beautiful declarations of the supremacy of God in the Scriptures. So let's turn to 1 Chronicles 29, 11. First Chronicles 29, 11. I'll just read this. I'll read verses 10 through 13. This is a prayer of David. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So there are six attributes that are ascribed to God in verse 11. And he defines all of them for us. The first is greatness. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. And we've talked about the greatness of God. We, it is to say that God surpasses. He, he extends beyond. He's higher. He's longer, wider, deeper than everything. He's, he's great in every way. God's greatness is an eternal and immutable attribute, not merely a title that He has earned. He always has been and always will be infinitely greater than anything to which He is compared. His is the greatness. The concept of greatness is God's. He has, a, he has the, the corner market on the concept or the idea of greatness. He is great. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the power. From the Hebrew word gavura. This may also denote strength and might. In the realm of power... There is no one who can contend with God. If all the forces of creation were to come together in a single army to oppose the throne of God, it would be as pointless and unthreatening as a tiny gnat pounding its head against a world of granite. Not very effective. Not very useful. The next word is glory. From a Hebrew word that may also communicate beauty. It is often used to describe the splendor of garments or the magnificence of jewels. The most breathtaking beauty of creation is a dark shadow compared to the one who created all. The next word is victory. This can communicate different meanings depending on the context. In one context, it may communi communicate victory or strength, but in another, it can communicate the idea of something or someone that is perpetual or enduring. Then we have the word majesty, which may also denote splendor, honor, beauty, or vigor. Then we have the dominion or the kingdom. This word denotes or communicates the ideas of dominion, sovereignty, reign, and rule. And then he references what we read. The pagan king Nebuchadnezzar declared of God, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Great, greatness, power, glory, victory, majesty, dominion. He asks, what do these six attributes 
demonstrate, or how do these six attributes demonstrate God's supremacy over all? Well, if He's great, that means He's great in position. He's great in authority. He's great in being. He supersedes all that He's created in every conceivable way. The concept of power, we've studied that before. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. All power is His, and He is Himself pure, unmixed power. Nothing can have power over Him. He gives power to everything that has any power. When it comes to glory, there's no imperfection in God. It's all perfect splendor, perfect beauty. We could say then that every created thing must submit to God out of sheer astonishment at His beauty. He just displays His beauty and every created thing must bow to Him. When it comes to victory, He is the eternally triumphant One. No attack ever mounted against Him has ever gained an inch. Any attack that has ever been supposedly mounted against God was a part of His own eternal decree. When it comes to majesty, God's majesty demands the respect and honor of all creation. When it comes to dominion as creator and sustainer, God maintains undiluted, unshared dominion over every inch and every molecule of the created realm. That is to say, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So then he asks the question about the final statement. The way it's translated in the ESV, O Lord, you are exalted as head above all, or the NAS... Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Why is it right for God to exalt Himself as head over all? The answer is twofold. First, God is the most worthy being to take the highest place above His creation. For Him to deny Himself first place above us would be to deny that He is God. Second, the greatest good God could ever do for us and the greatest kindness He could ever show us would be to exalt Himself as head over all, as He has done. Someone must rule creation. It is, it is to our benefit that the most holy, righteous, loving, and powerful being take His place as ruler and not relegate it to a lesser being. You'll often hear people who argue against the sovereignty of God, they'll say, well, yeah, God is sovereign, but He's given a little bit of that over to us. Well, then you just made Him not sovereign. There's only one. Yeah, but He's given us this power. No, He's sovereign. He rules over everything. Now, to be sure, when we read that, you exalt yourself, or He is exalted, God doesn't need to do anything to to actually exalt himself. It is not as if he's, he's flying up higher into the sky to make himself higher. He is the exalted sovereign king overall. That's his nature. His essence is the exalted one. But the point being made there, you exalt yourself, is, is that in the eyes of creation and before all created things, God works to make sure that there's no confusion about who's in charge. And the irony is the only confusion that exists is in the minds of fallen men. No other creature, even the demons we've seen, have, have succumbed to the ignorance or the irrational conception that God is not the Most High. Only fallen and sinful men would fall under that type of darkness to reject the sovereignty of God. Thirdly and lastly, 
To conclude our study of the supremacy of God, we will consider a very important text from the book of Psalms. So turn to Psalm 113, verses 4 through 6. Psalm 113. Verses 4 through 6. We have time. We'll just read the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory Above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The focus there. Verses 4 through 6. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. What's the point? The heavens themselves. From a human's perspective, writing, we look up. What do we see? The heavens. The heavens are, are up to us. We can't go higher than the heavens. To say high is to say the heavens. To say the heavens is to say high. But then we have this picture of God. His glory is above the heavens. He looks down on the heavens. What's the picture? He's above. He rules over everything. The Lord is high above all nations. The nations are like a drop in a bucket and as dust on the scales compared to our God. Our Lord could say in in Matthew's gospel and others, when he predicted the, the, basically the, the way the world would be until Christ returns, he says that, that kingdom will rise against kingdom and nation against nation, against nation. there will be wars and rumors of wars. He says it as if, as if it's nothing. This is how it will be because this is how it's always been. And how can he say that so nonchalantly? Because he is the ruler of all these nations. They, they only conduct themselves according to his eternal decree. He reigns over them. No nation will ever rise against any other nation without God ordering and disposing those very events. Who is like our God? There is no one like our God. No one seated on high like our God. No one looks down on the heavens like God does. No one looks down on the earth like our God. He has no equal he has no counterpart. He has no opponent. He has no contender. He has no rival. You say, wait a second. I thought people all over the world are enemies of God. That is true. But we know from Scripture and examples like Pharaoh that every enemy of God that, that mounts himself up and maybe even amasses a kingdom and an army against God or against his people, all, that has been orchestrated by God himself so that He can raise them up and then put them back down just to show that He sovereignly rules over them. It is to show His power over them. 
Now, what can we learn from all of this? Well, for now, we are safe in the arms of our God. We're safe. We have nothing to fear. Let's pray.